Section 50 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Homicide, Part 27, The Brantley-Eskridge Romance, Part 3. The guilty pair arrived at a hotel in Demopolis, where they fully matured their plans. Eskridge, who was to personally attend to the killing of Brantley, in prearranging to prove an alibi, and also to account for his absence from home, wrote a letter to O.F. Harrell in Selma, which letter is postmarked Demopolis, and reads as follows. Dear Sir, I am compelled to be gone for a few weeks on business and to recruit my health, which is very bad at present. There are some little balances still due by the tenants on the Swift Place, of which I will send you a memorandum. I will be back between this and Christmas. Yours truly, J.N. Eskridge. In furtherance of their plans, Mrs. Brantley wrote a letter to her husband dating it, at home, although it was mailed and postmarked to Marvelous, requesting him to meet her on the morning of the 4th of December at the Squawkaluck Railway Station on the arrival of the early up train. This letter was afterwards found on the dead body of Brantley. In Demopolis, they both were strangers and attracted no particular attention at the time. They occupied a room at the hotel as husband and wife, announcing themselves as such. When they were ready to leave, they hired a conveyance to drive to Livingston, Sumter County, Alabama. Eskridge and Mrs. Brantley occupied the conveyance together, while a boy accompanied them, riding Eskridge's horse. Reaching Livingston, they stopped at a public house there, kept by Mrs. Lockard, who, being produced on the part of the defendant in the insurance suit, testified as follows. About the 1st or 2nd of December, 1870, a gentleman came to my hotel in company with a lady. They drove up in a carriage together. A boy was attending to them, riding a very fine iron-gray horse belonging to the gentleman. The horse was retained here, and the carriage sent back with the boy, to Demopolis. The gentlemen registered their names as Joseph N. Eskridge and Lady, and said they had come up from Demopolis and wanted to go to the nearest station, from this place, on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, above Meridian. I directed them to Gainesville Junction as the nearest point by private conveyance, through the country, about 25 miles distant from my hotel. I advised them to go by rail from Meridian, but they objected, saying they desired to avoid that place. They remained as guests at my hotel during two nights and one day. They represented themselves as man and wife and occupied the same apartment. His attentions were remarkably affectionate and tender towards her, and the waiters called them the loving couple. This gentleman and lady remained in their room nearly all the time during the day, 
except at meal hours. They walked out on the streets both evenings and remained out about an hour the last night of their stay. That night, when they returned from their walk, they brought back with them a new double-barreled shotgun. Important testimony was also furnished by William Kirkland, keeper of a livery stable in Livingston. He stated that on the second day of December 1870, Joseph N. Eskridge, whom he had formerly known for many years, came to Livingston in a wagon belonging to Mr. Brightling in Demopolis. A very handsome lady, unknown to witness, accompanied him. He brought with him a fine iron-gray horse, which witness stabled and fed. Being acquainted with Eskridge, witness asked him who the lady was, but he would not tell, and evaded every question about her. A merchant doing business in Livingston brought out a material fact in the course of his evidence, said he, to the best of my recollection between the 1st and 3rd of December, 1870, a strange gentleman came into my store and selected a double-barreled shotgun, the price of which was $25, and at his request it was laid aside for him, he stating that he would call for it. He came the next night in company with a lady whom he called Dearest and asked for the gun, and the lady paid for it. She, upon examining the gun, remarked that it was a very nice one and would do, as they wanted to use it about two months and then could sell it to the freedmen for the amount they gave for it. They took the gun and left the store, it being then about nine o'clock at night. This lady was tall and slender, had black eyes, fair complexion, light hair, and wore a diamond ring. The gentleman was about five feet seven or eight inches high, good-looking, hair short, and inclined to be gray. Eskridge procured a carriage at Kirkland Stable on the morning of the 3rd of December, for the use of which he paid Kirkland $10 to go to Gainesville Junction, a station on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. A son of Kirkland went with them, riding Eskridge's horse, and brought the carriage back from the junction. The party arrived at Gainesville Junction before noon of that day and stopped at a small hotel kept by Reuben S. Parks. At the time of their arrival, Mrs. Brantley was in the carriage and Eskridge was riding his horse. Eskridge dismounted and assisted Mrs. Brantley to alight from the carriage, while a son of Mr. Parks, the landlord, took Eskridge's horse. They went into the hotel and upstairs to a room, where they remained together some two or three hours. In the course of the afternoon, Eskridge's horse was saddled for departure. He mounted and rode over to the depot, where he dismounted and asked Alan Parks, the boy who had received his horse on arrival, to hold his horse in a bundle while he went into the depot office. Alan testifies that while he was in charge of the bundle, during Eskridge's absence in the depot office, he examined it and found it to be a double-barreled shotgun, unstocked and wrapped in a blanket. Eskridge inquired of the depot agent the nearest way to Shackalack. He was directed in reply to ride upon the railroad track to a station five miles north, 
where he would strike the dirt road leading to Shackalack and could there get further direction. He at once rode off up the railroad as directed, with the bundle containing the shotgun across his lap. Shackalack, the place where Brantley had remained so long in concealment, is about 25 miles north from Gainesville Junction, and Eskridge arrived there sometime during the evening of the day he left the junction. It appears that Brantley, that evening about 10 o'clock, took his supper with one Felix B. Greer in the back room of Nerman Anderson's store in Shackalack. Mr. Greer had some mules in a lot back of the store, and hearing a disturbance among them, he went out to learn the cause. There he saw a man with a blanket over his shoulders, carrying a gun. The stranger remarked to Greer, "'Your mules are only frightened by me,' and at once walked down the street, whereupon Greer returned to the store. Greer again that night saw the stranger on the platform of the railway passenger station, and also saw him in front of Nurm and Anderson's store, where his horse was hitched. Greer remarked to him that he had a fine horse, and he replied that it was a thoroughbred. The moon was shining very brightly, and Greer noticed that the horse was a dark iron gray with a white face and fifteen or sixteen hands high. Greer further said in evidence that in conversation with Mr. Brantley that evening, December 3rd, Brantley said he was expecting his wife by the early morning train, and in order that he might not fail to be present on arrival of the train, he was to sleep at the passenger station house with Mr. Irwin, the station agent. Eskridge, it would seem, was prowling about the vicinity of the railway depot several hours that night, watching for his victim. During all this time, he had his blanket wrapped about his shoulders and had his gun, which was then properly adjusted with the lock under his arm, carrying it in the usual manner, muzzle down. Sometime during the early morning hours, and probably somewhat under the influence of liquor, Brantley went into the depot unobserved by Eskridge, and there fell asleep in a chair before the stove, in which a fire was burning. While Brantley was thus sleeping and awaiting the arrival of the train, on which his wife was expected, Eskridge took deliberate aim, and shooting from where he stood on the platform outside, sent the charge through the closed window into Brantley's head, causing his instant death. The only other person in the room when Brantley was shot was the mail carrier. He was lying upon a bench under the window through which Eskridge fired and was asleep at the time. This carrier had seen Eskridge that night on arriving with the mail at the depot and had observed his iron-gray horse particularly. Eskridge was dismounted at the time and standing with the bridle in his hand. He was wrapped in a blanket and had a gun under his arm. When the shot was fired, the frightened carrier jumped up, ran out and hid under a car, where he remained until daylight. Immediately after the shooting of Brantley, Eskridge sprang into the saddle and rode rapidly away. To return to Mrs. Brantley, whom we left at Parks's Hotel, Gainesville Junction, she remained there that night, gave her name to the landlord as Mrs. Brantley, and left on the early train going north. On the same train was a passenger who on the part of the defendant in the suit, T. 
testified as follows. The train left Gainesville Junction about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning on the 4th day of December. It arrived at Jacques-a-Lac, 25 miles above on scheduled time. When we reached Jacques-a-Lac, a lady got up from the seat immediately behind me, in the ladies' car, and rushed to the door exclaiming in an excited tone, Where is my husband? Is my husband here? She received no reply, and returning to her seat, appeared satisfied. The cars then proceeded to Macon, the next station, which is about ten miles above. There was a freight train on the main track at Macon when we arrived, and the passenger train was obliged to halt until the freight train could back out. After our train stopped, the same lady took her satchel and was in the act of getting off the train when I informed her that the train had not reached the depot. It was a cold morning, and I then occupied the seat directly in front of the stove. After I spoke to her, the lady came in and stood by the stove. When I observed that her dress was wet and I asked her to take my seat, she seemed cold and her shoes were muddy. She sat down and asked me to share the seat with her. I did so. As soon as I took my seat, she commenced talking of what caused her feet to be wet. She said that that morning her husband put her on the train at Gainesville Junction, and as she was getting to the train, she stepped into the mud. She then said that her husband from Selma had telegraphed her to meet him at Shackalack, and if he was not at Shackalack, for her to go on to Macon. After telling me this, she said that her husband would have come up with her on the train that morning, but that he had a very fine racehorse which was afraid of the cars, and so he had ridden his horse through the country to meet her at Shackalack. She requested me to attend to her baggage in going from the depot to the town of Macon. We stepped into the omnibus, and I then discovered that the woman was apparently drunk. When we reached the hotel, she was in such a condition that she could scarcely alight from the omnibus. When the driver opened the door, I took her satchel and mine. She got hold of my arm and walked with me into the hotel. I remarked to the clerk that here was a lady who wanted a room. She paid her omnibus fare, and while she was doing so, I left the hotel office. When I returned about twenty minutes later, the clerk assigned me a room. While I was in my room, my attention was attracted by the sound of someone pounding on the wall in the adjoining room and calling, Come in! I went to the door of that room, opened it, and discovered the same woman who had come to the hotel with me from the cars. I asked her what she wanted. She answered, Come in! I walked to the foot of the bed upon which she was lying with all her clothes and bonnet on. I supposed that she was still intoxicated, and I left her room and at once informed the clerk that she needed assistance. It is probable that the intoxication was due to morphine and chloral, which Mrs. Brantley took occasionally, and which is known to have produced similar effects upon her previously. End of section 50